Today, we're finishing up a series that I started about a month ago called A Case for Christianity. And that's a pretty popular kind of a name. And I said to start with, I'm calling it a case because there's lots of cases that can be made for Christianity. And what I say doesn't come anywhere close to covering everything that, uh, that could be said. But basically what we've been talking about, except for last Sunday on Mother's Day, is about the evidence uh, that supports our faith. God uh, requires faith of us, and He even gives us that faith so that we can trust in Him. But He does not ask us to believe blindly. And so we've been looking at this particular statement. Faith goes beyond evidence, that's true, but it is supported by evidence. There's a reason, there are reasons that we believe what we believe. And so uh, for three weeks leading up, to, leading up to this, we identified the Christian discipline called apologetics. And then we first examined why I believe the Bible, why I believe the Bible is what it claims to be, the Word of God. Specifically, we just took a look at the New Testament. Uh, we saw that it's historically reliable. There's a lot of textual evidence for it. It's passed the test test of time. The development of the New Testament wasn't just something that one guy decided to do, but, but it was a 300-year process during which hundreds of early church leaders recognized the value of these writings and understood that they came from God. And we talked about the fact that it works. You know, the Bible does exactly what it says it's going to do in your life. And then we looked at why I believe in Jesus, why I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the creator of the universe, the very God of heaven, the son uh, uh, of God, all God and all man. He's either a liar or lunatic or Lord. We looked at from that aspect and, and why the Lord is the best choice there. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at three of the co most common objections to the Bible. Some people say the Bible's full of contradictions. It, it isn't. You know, they just never have really read scripture or the Bible presents an unenlightened worldview. It's anti-women and, and pro-slavery. It isn't uh, those things uh, either. Uh, or the Bible commands me to do things I don't want to do. Well, that's true uh, uh, about Scripture. That's because it's good for us. That's because God, God designed us and God knows what's best for us. Now today, we're going to start the, the final message by going back to the first passage of Scripture that we looked at. This has not been a series that's about investigating passages of Scripture. It's been more about external evidence. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 begins like this. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Some of that practical advice you get from Scripture, by the way. Some of that stuff that we don't want to do a lot of times. I, I don't know if I want to be like-minded and sympathetic. I just want things my way, and I want you to love me whether I love you or not. But be like-minded. That is, get along with each other, and that only happens uh, when our focus is on Jesus and not on ourselves. Verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. That's a difficult thing to do. I don't like doing that either because to, you, to this you were called so that you may inherit blessing. You want to inherit a blessing? Well then, uh, uh, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but instead repay evil with blessing. And then in verse 10, uh, we start a quotation from Psalm 34, which says this for, quote, whoever would love life, I want to love life, don't you? See good days, must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Verse 11, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Or verse 12 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who 
do evil. When you follow God, when you trust in Jesus, and when you follow God, he is with you, and he is empowering you, and he is comforting you. He's, he's guiding you through everything. Verse 13 says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now, that's kind of a, a tough statement there. If you're committed to doing good, who's going to harm you? Well, a lot of bad people are going to try to harm you. Uh, uh, be a Christian in, in Syria or Iraq or, or uh, North Korea or China or someplace like this. Uh, but the idea is no real harm can come to you because you're under the protection of God. It may hurt sometimes. It may hurt. But when you serve God, even when you suffer for it, there's blessings involved. And that comes up in the 14th verse, which says, but even if you should suffer for, for what's right, you do what's right and you still suffer for it. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And then verse 15 is that verse that's kind of the focal point of the month, uh, which says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord of your life. In your heart, make God number one in your life. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You have a hope. That hope is in Jesus Christ. Why? Why is that true in your life? It's just, well, I just felt like doing that one day. Why is that true? But do this with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. We live our lives as Christians. Uh, can you be criticized? Everybody, criticize. Everybody can be criticized. Everybody can be and will be. Uh, but some people know that their criticism has to be dishonest because you, you are who you're supposed to be. Verse 17 says, For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, uh, what we think a lot of times is, I did the right thing and I still got in trouble for it. I'm not trying to do that anymore. Well, no, God says it's better. If you're going to suffer, it's better for suffering for doing the right thing. You got reward for that than to suffer for doing the wrong thing. Why? Well, verse 18 is for Christ also suffered for our sins. Christ suffered for doing the best thing that's ever been done, right? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He put to death, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And he is our example in every single thing. Last week on Mother's Day, we looked at that Jesus, uh, you know, the son of Mary, right? How Jesus is the example for us. So today's closing subject is this. Doesn't matter what you believe. What's truth anyway? Does it matter what you believe? I think the subject of today and the series are particularly appropriate for Graduates Sunday because when young men and young women go to most colleges, their faith comes under attack from the first day, maybe from the time they fill out their application form. I'm not sure. I remember, you know, I've got a couple of degrees from secular universities. I know something about the attacks that take place. I've been saying for the last three weeks that the person of Jesus Christ and the faith in him that we have will stand up under honest scrutiny. It will take the, it te, it, it'll stand the test of time. It'll stand the test of questions that come up. You may not have all the answers all the time, but your faith in Jesus is real and honest and just and based on reality and evidence. So, does it matter what you believe? What is truth? 
We live in a postmodern world today that says there is no such thing as truth. You know, truth is whatever you think it is. Truth is what is true for you. Uh, back in 1977, there was a movie that came out called Oh God. And uh, in that movie, George Burns was God. John Denver was his special uh, project on earth. And uh, at some point, John Denver says to George Burns, who's playing God, well, what about Jesus? Was he your son? And George Burns says, yes. And then there's a pause. And he says, and so was Buddha. And so was Muhammad. And so on and so forth. George Burns was verbalizing what many Americans have long thought, that all religion is good in their own way, and they all lead to God. And it's not so much what you believe that's important, but that you're what? Not so much what you believe, but that you are sincere, right? Isn't that what the, the general thought in our, in our country and in our world today? We Americans are so proud of our diversity and our pluralism that we've come to believe that uh, as a nation that everything is good and right as long as we are sincere, as long as we feel it from the heart, as long as we believe it from the heart that it's okay. <clears throat> now, I don't want to, uh, I hate to go back to a bad time, but if, uh, most of us here, you know, can remember September the 11th, 2001, when 19 very sincere men sacrificed their lives for what they thought was right, believed in, evidently in the depths of their soul to be the right thing. They attacked our country and thousands of innocent Americans lost their lives. Now, their actions show us just how dangerous misguided sincerity can be. Does it matter what you believe? Well, if it doesn't matter, then those 19 guys are all in heaven right now, and they're there based on the sincerity of their belief. But I have to say this to you, that when it comes to having a relationship with God, while sincerity is necessary, you have to be sincere in that. It's not enough. Don't put your faith in your sincerity. By the way, have you ever been on a trip, traveling somewhere, never had been there before, and you were just absolutely certain and sincere that you were going in the right direction, and then all of a sudden you found yourself where you weren't, didn't want to be? I think we've all been there at some point uh, in time, not so much anymore with nav systems, but they'll lead you astray too if you're not real careful with it. It felt right, but it was all wrong. Uh, just think about this statement right here. When it comes to being right with God, sincerity is necessary. It's got to be from the heart. But sincerity by itself is not enough because you can be as sincerely wrong as you can be sincerely right. So the question is, how do I know if what I believe is, is true? And if it isn't, how do I find what is truth? And so today, very quickly, uh, and I can't spend much time on any one of these because uh, I've been going over time recently. I'm trying not to go over time today. But, but uh, we're going to look at four tests for truth. You can put your beliefs to these tests. And the first one is this. Truth is universal. It works for everyone. What I believe is either true or it is false, one of the two. If my beliefs are true, then they apply to everybody in all times. Now, 
you can probably think of something that seems to be both true and not true at the same time. For instance, here's a statement. Abraham Lincoln is the president of the United States. Now, if that statement was made in 1863, it's true. If it was made in 2012, it's a completely different statement, and it's false. But it will always be true that Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States in 1863. That is truth. The perspective of the speaker, and I just, just throw this little thing out, the perspective of the speaker is understood as a part of the context. Context of what's said is important, right? Think about this. Meaning is relative to the concept. What you mean is relative to how it's said and so forth, but truth is not relative to the context. Truth is truth is truth all the time. Now, we're inundated these days with this idea of relative truth. What's true for you is true for you, but it may not be true for me. Think of the benefits of that. You can never be wrong. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, I'm always right because what's true for me is, is true for me. How convenient. But also, it's kind of bad for education because you could never learn anything. Education, by definition, is moving from false to true. And if there's nothing that's really true, nothing that's really false, then I don't have to learn anything. So, so much for ed education. Or think about this statement. All truth is relative. You like that? All truth is relative. Well, what's wrong with that statement? Well, it's an absolute statement to start with. Absolutely true that all truth is relative. Uh, if it is absolute, then it destroys its own self and it destroys the relativist. And if it's relative, then uh, you can't say it. You know, that it's always true that truth is relative. Uh, you might be able to say it's, it's, it's only a matter of my opinion that this is true most of the time or something of that nature, but that's an absurd statement right there. It's an, a statement cannot be made, and it's, a, it's absurd as relativism itself is that what's true is true for you, and what's uh, true for me is true for me. If the only truth that exists in this world is a truth that might be true for you, but not for me, then it's not really truth. It's a good saying. Uh, it's sometimes useful idea, maybe, but it is not true, because truth is universal. It works for everyone. Now, here's the second thing. Truth is objective. Now, what I mean by that is what's true is true, whether or not anyone else believes it. Truth is not a matter of majority of opinion, what most people uh, believe. News stations do opinion polls. They got themselves in trouble with that over the last year or so. But news, news stations do opinion polls, and they'll ask, uh, what do you think? Uh, is, is this person... Uh, responsible or not responsible or guilty or not guilty or, or whatever, and, and everybody clicks in, you know, what they think it is, makes us feel like what our opinion actually matters when it doesn't most of the time. But uh, everybody clicks in and, you know, they'll give the results of the poll and so forth. And the fact of the matter, it doesn't really matter what the opinion of the majority is, because even if the majority, even if the, it was unanimous, uh, it wouldn't change the objective fact that a person is guilty or innocent, or involved, or not involved, or had this intention, or had some other intention. Uh, what's true is true, regardless of what the majority believes. Christianity is the world's largest religion still. Does that make it right by itself? Nope. Islam is the world's fastest growing religion. Does that make it true? Nope. It doesn't make it true. 
Truth is not a matter of majority opinion. Truth is objective. It's true whether anybody believes it or does not believe it. Number three, truth is verifiable. That is, you can, uh, you can experiment, you can investigate and verify that this is truth. Earlier in the series, I explained why I believe the Bible and why I believe in Jesus. It's because the claims of both can be verified through research. Both can withstand intense scrutiny. Our belief that Jesus rose from the dead is not based on folklore. It's based on eyewitness account of a historical event that has been recorded and scrutinized for 2,000 years. I read this testimony, by the way. I like to use other people's testimonies and things like this so as not to embarrass uh, anybody locally, but uh, this is a, a statement a pastor made. He said, a friend of mine became a Mormon a couple of years ago. I asked him about his conversion, and he said, when I first attended their church, I felt such an atmosphere of love and acceptance, more than I've felt at my old church, and I knew that was a place for me. And so this guy said, Scott, love and acceptance are great, but did you ever think to examine the claims of Mormonism and see how they measure up to historical fact? He waved me off and said, I know what I found is real. But he couldn't answer my question, how do you know that? Your beliefs cannot be based on feelings. Feelings are great. I like good feelings. Uh, but good feelings are not always right. And bad feelings are not always right. The Christian concept of God is based on verifiable truth. The fact that he revealed himself through Scripture, Scripture that can withstand scrutiny, by the way, and has withstood scrutiny for thousands of years. And he revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, and that has been uh, scrutinized for over, uh, for over two millennia. Truth is verifiable. So truth is universal. Uh, it applies to all people of all times. It's objective. It's not a matter of, uh, of personal opinion or majority opinion. It's verifiable. And one last thing, truth works. Now, that's not enough, but in, in week one, I told, you, uh, I, I told you that one reason I believe in the Bible is because it works. Because you do what the Bible says, it works. When you apply its teachings to your life, it works. It does what it claims to do. And, and, and if something works, then its claims are true. Now, I'm not saying that just because somebody claims that something worked for them that that makes it true, you know, because we have all different kinds of divergent things. But here's what I'm talking about. Here's an example uh, of, uh, of truth that works. Two plus two is what? It's four. Yeah, somebody said four? Yeah, four. Two plus two is four. How'd you know that? Was it just because, was it because somebody told you that in school? How'd you know that was true? Two plus two is four. How'd you know? Yeah, I mean, every day I had two apples. Johnny gave me two more apples. I know how many apples I got. I have four apples. It's true every single time, right? It's, it, it works. Two plus two is four. Now, that's pretty simple. And, and, and I'm not going to take time to get into other ambiguous statements like an aspirin will take care of your headache or something of that nature. But here's how this applies to your spiritual life. If a belief or doctrine or a theological theory doesn't work in the real world of day-to-day -day living, then it isn't true. Whether it's a street prophet that's standing on the corner somewhere, or whether it's a cult of some kind, uh, you know, 
Do you remember or did you ever study about the utopian communities in America in the 19th century, in the 1800s? There were hundreds of what were called utopian communities with names like the famous ones like Oneida. There's still some stainless ware, by the way, that's made by the company that started uh, as a utopian community. But Oneida, Brook Farm, Oneida, Brook Farm, Fruitlands, New Harmony, uh, the Shaker communities. A lot of the Shakers, of course, started in, in the, uh, the 1700s, not the 1800s. But uh, utopian and, and And by the way, Fairhope, Alabama started as a utopian community. It isn't now a utopia. It's a nice place. Not a utopian community any, anymore, but what they have left over is the single tax society that still owns part of the town and makes you pay the single tax if you happen to be there. So that part of it is, is left over. But utopian communities in 19th century America were considered by many to herald a new age in human civilization, uh, whether it was a group, as a religious group or an intellectual group, a group of scientists or a group of philosophers or a group of, uh, of authors or whatever uh, it might be. Uh, they were going to create the perfect society if you would just follow their plan, often led by very charismatic leaders. Uh, they experimented widely with different uh, models of government. Usually it was some sort of a communal uh, uh, setup. Uh, marriage in, in the Oneida community, for instance, which was a religious community, everybody was married to everybody else, every man, every woman, every little boy, every little girl, they were all married uh, to each other. Uh, so marriage and labor, everybody just, most community, it, it was everybody just working, uh, giving up everything they have just so that you could spend more time doing what was important. But uh, hundreds, hundreds of these communities grew up in America, the United States in the 1800s. Uh, they lasted between a few months and a few years. All of them are gone now, most of them without a trace, a few of them like the Oneida community, you know, you can still buy some stainless ware uh, with the Oneida uh, name. But it reminds me that when I hear a teacher, Christian or secular, teach any type of a life system, do this and things will be great for you. I ask myself, does it work? You know, does that really work? All that stuff from those utopian communities, it didn't really work. You know, people had fun with it for a little while, but it didn't really work? Does it really work? Another question I ask is, since we already know that the Bible or Scripture is true, is this teaching biblically sound? Since the Bible, you know, is, is, is the ultimate written authority for us, it, if it goes against Scripture, something we shouldn't take seriously. But teachers come along and they say, do this and you'll be healed. Do this and you'll prosper financially. Do this and you'll overcome anxiety. You'll never have another worry. Do this, uh, and your children will behave themselves. Of course, then I always want to say, how'd your kids turn out, <laughs> you know, if, if that's what you say. But, uh, but, but what I always ask myself is, is there evidence to support what these people are saying? Because it should work. The Christian message that Jesus came into the world to save you from your sin and to give you the fullest life possible on this planet is true. We know it's true one, by many, uh, for many reasons, but one of those reasons is because it works, because it's been proven time and time and time and time again. In my lifetime, I've met hundreds of people whose lives were revolutionized by their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you right here in this room uh, this morning. The Christian message is true, and one way 
that we know that is because it works. Now, this whole series, except for last Sunday, has been kind of different from what I normally do. Uh, <clears throat> we talked about the Bible. We haven't gone through Scripture verse by verse a lot, which is my preference. But the purpose of this series has been to present a case for the Christian faith uh, with, from a number of external sources. Today I want to close it all out with, just, with a couple of important verses of Scripture. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, and verse 31, Scripture says this. John recorded this. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. It's always nice to say, read what Jesus said. Most people perk up. Even if they don't believe in the Bible, if Jesus said it, they'll perk up. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you continue in what I have said to you, if you continue in my teaching, if you remain faithful to my teaching, if you live your life based on my teachings, if you stay in my word and apply my word to your life, you're, my, you're really my disciples, you're really my followers. It's not about salvation, this is are you my followers. And then verse 32 says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. All truth is God's truth. And when we know truth, it draws us to God and makes us free in Him. Jesus, the one who conquered death, is saying to us, truth is not some elusive guessing game. You can know it, and when you know it, starting with Jesus, it will set you free. Jesus said the way you know the truth is by living your life according to His teachings, according to His principles. If you do what God says to do, if you do what Jesus says to do, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Keep focused on Him. Uh, if you're not quite convinced that all this stuff is true, stay focused on Him and learn the truth and it will set you free. If you've believed in Him for 50 years, keep focused on Him anyway because in His teachings you will find the truth. And that's what we've been talking about this whole time. Now, as we come to the close today, Andrea, I guess you're going to have to come up here by yourself. You don't mind doing that, do you? Come on up. Kate is not here, right? And, and uh, Christian, would you come up also? Just stand right here, if you will. Matter of fact, why don't you come up on the platform? You're going to be up here in a couple of weeks anyway. So I asked Christian to come up because Christian is our, is our student ministries uh, leader. Uh, and I do want to start by giving you a, a little token of our appreciation as your church. And, and I want to tell you that, that your church family loves you and appreciates you. And we, we rejoice with you. We want to shout along with your family but this great accomplishment that you've made of graduating from high school. Uh, and I can, I can say that she did a good job of it. You know, she's just not just scooting in by the skin of her teeth. She's a, she's a star uh, pupil. And, and so we're praying for your continued success. Uh, you're going to find you're, you're a, a girl who knows Jesus as her Savior. Uh, I think you're committed to Him, and I, and I thank God for that. But <clears throat> what I've been trying to say and what I want to say to you personally is your faith is not based on a whim. It's not, it's not some nebulous cloud out here. It's based on some real stuff. It's based on real, a real historical event in Jesus Christ. It's true. 
And, um, and your faith will come under attack in the next few years when you go off to college. Uh, all of us uh, are under attack. And if we think that we can kind of drift along in our faith and remain unaffected, that, that, that we're sadly mistaken because we're all affected. And college is going to do one or two things. It's going to make your faith stronger or it's going to weaken your faith. And, and what we want to do is, uh, as a church, we want to support you. We want to, we want to uh, uh, pray for you on a regular basis. And um, what I'm asking uh, church and guests, if you'll make that commitment to pray for her, would you stand up right now, please? And Christian is going to lead us in prayer. Uh, band is going to come up, by the way. Ushers are going to come forward and get ready. Uh, but uh, oh, Christian's going to lead us in a prayer commitment uh, for Andrea. And uh, if her mom and dad don't mind, she's going to stand with Jean and me at the door so that everybody can shake her hand, give her a hug, whatever, on their way out. Christian. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to gather in your house this morning uh, as believers uh, and have the ability to honor Andrea and the accomplishment that she has made. Lord, we are thankful for the constant work that you have done in her life to bring her to this moment. Lord, we're thankful for her family and her friends and her church who have who've constantly done your work in her life. Lord, now we pray that going forward in this next season, this challenge of university and uh, the test that will come along with it, Lord, that you will remain true and strong and you will guide her feet and you will give her wisdom uh, and you will hold her close to you. Uh, Lord, we are just so thankful uh, for Andrea and the, the light that she is. Lord, we pray that you prepare her for ministry and her role. Uh, Lord, we're just thankful for the grace and the truth and the mercy that you show to us every single day. And it is in your holy name we pray. Amen.